Hey, if you got your uh, Bibles with you, go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark will be in chapter 11 this morning. Um, as you can see behind me, we're in a series now called The Journey to the Cross, which looking back now, you know, is probably mistitled as we're actually journeying to the empty tomb. Uh, we're, we're making our way to Easter, to the resurrection and what we're doing this series is we're spending five weeks, this is week number two, um, looking at the events that led up to not only the crucifixion of Jesus, but the resurrection and our ultimate salvation through Him and His, uh, His atoning sacrifice and His saving work for our sins. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to uh, check out the church's podcast. You can find that link online. You can also find it if you are a iTunes type of person. You can uh, subscribe to it. It's Harvest Hill Baptist Church, and not only as last week, but the weeks before. As we looked at the triumphal entry, and we were primarily focused last week in the Gospel of Luke. Um, like I said, with last week, this series, we're going to be looking at all the Gospels and kind of bringing this picture together to get a better understanding of what was going on. But we saw last Sunday as Jesus head in, headed into Jerusalem for that Passover celebration, that final week of His earthly ministry before He went to the cross, that the people were praising Him and the people were criticizing Him. Some of them were adoring Him and some of them wanting Him to be quiet and to also silence the crowd. And this morning we pick up uh, in, in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, uh, we pick up on the next day. Uh, last Sunday was triumphal entry, which happened on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. And today we begin on the next day, which would be, Larry's got it, Monday. Um, but to tie up any loose ends, uh, look with me in verse 11 to kind of get an understanding of what happened at Sunday when Jesus came uh, to Jerusalem. So he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Again, this parade coming into Jerusalem was about two miles of just being paraded, uh, being worshipped, coats being laid on the ground, palm branches being waved around. And so it would have taken quite a while to actually get to Jerusalem. But we come into verse 11 and we see what happened when Jesus got there. He just kind of looked around at everything and since it was late... He headed back home, and that seems very anticlimactic as Jesus is paraded into Jerusalem, and then he gets there, turns around, and then goes back to Bethany where he's staying, most likely with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It kind of reminds me of the scene, if you're familiar with the movie Forrest Gump. Uh, Jason, can you do a good Forrest impersonation? Were you running? No? Okay. Oh, you can quote it. All right. So, um, Forrest Gump, there's a scene in the movie, you're probably familiar, you know, Forrest Gump was a runner, obviously, and... And uh, one day after his beloved Jenny leaves him, he decides that he's going to go for a, what could be assumed, a run for several years. And so he sets off running, you know, state line, you know, coast to coast and things like that. And he begins getting a following, right? So in the movie, these people start running along with Forrest and they're, they're following him on these trails as he's going across the nation. And it comes to this point, however long he's running, is that he just stops in this area and decides that he's done. And he turns around, the crowd looks at him, and says, he's going to say something, he's going to say something. And he just says, I'm going to go home now. And then he takes off, and all the, all the people are like, well, what are we supposed to do now? What? I mean, you know, all, they put all their meaning and their purpose into this running with this man, and then they get nowhere, really. 
And I wonder, as this crowd came to Jerusalem with Jesus and they're shouting his praises and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, and Jesus comes into the temple. And as they're singing these psalms, it is a psalm speaking of the king coming to the temple to offer sacrifice to the Lord and to restore Israel back to its prosperity, back to the times of King David and Solomon. And Jesus comes in. Can you imagine the crowd just sitting there like... He's going to say something. He's going to do something. And the Bible says he looks around. It was late. And he goes home or back to Bethany. And I imagine as the crowd saw him do that and where we pick up in verse 12, we gain an understanding that there's been a change in the atmosphere. <coughs> Verse 12, the Bible says in Mark chapter 11, the next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find it, find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching, and whenever evening came, they would go out of the city or back to Bethany, as Mark tells us earlier in the passage. Jump with me back to verse 12. We're told the next day they went out from Bethany. And again, Bethany is the place where Jesus kind of set up camp during the Passover celebration. That would be until uh, Thursday night where he would have his disciples rent an upper room and they would do what we call the Lord's Supper. There was the washing of feet and John, the Gospel of John, gives us a long recording of that event in that room as he is preparing them for what is about to take place in the next couple hours. But with the entirety of Scripture, what I want us to kind of see here is if you look back at the beginning of chapter 11, that's the Gospel of Mark's recording of the triumphal entry, and Mark kind of records very similar to what we saw last week in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Matthew also records the triumphal entry. And so you have this celebration and this party, and then we come to verse 12, and you come to the next day, and they went out from Bethany, and he was hungry. And like I said, it's kind of very anticlimactic. Where's the parade? Where's the celebration? Where are the palm branches? And where are the coats being laid on the ground as Jesus is coming in? Where are the, the songs from the, the book of Psalms? Where's this red carpet treatment? Where's the anticipation of Jesus Christ? I imagine if I was one of the disciples and probably Judas or Peter, I'd probably wake up on Monday thinking what happened Sunday is going to happen again today. That we're going to wake up, we're going to head back into Jerusalem, we're going to be met with crowds singing and worshiping God, and it's going to be an awesome celebration, it's going to be so exciting. But all the Gospels tell us there in verse 12 is when it comes to Monday, it was only the next day. 
And can't we relate to Scripture in that way? Don't we just love Mondays? Song from the 80s, it's just another manic Monday, and I wish it were... Some of y'all know this song. Wish it were Sunday. I bet the disciples wished it were Sunday. But the disciples wished they were brought into Jerusalem once again. Sunday, there was a parade. On Sunday, beginning of chapter 11, there was excitement. But on Monday, we find a hungry Jesus, a somewhat angered Jesus, and things aren't as exciting. Again, look at verse 12. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry and seen in a distance a fig tree with leaves. He went out to find if there's anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may, you never, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And Jesus is going to come back to this very event on Tuesday to give the disciples a lesson about faith. But, you know, when we come here and we look in Scripture on Monday, I can kind of relate to what's going on here. Um, Mondays for me are days to start new adventures. In particular, days to start like a diet or a day to start working out. You know, you can't start those things on Sundays, right? You don't start diets and working out on Fridays. Matter of fact, my, my train of thought, and you can give me an amen if you agree with this, is that if I'm going to start a new sort of eating program or a new sort of working out program, and I know it's going to start on Monday, then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are to do the things I really enjoy doing. So that means like, you know, extra salty treats at night. That means nice juicy burgers. That means eat everything. I know I'm going to forbid myself from eating. That's right, juicy burgers. Thank you for giving me an amen about that. Um, but just to do all the things that I know I'm not going to do, you know, I'm going to lay around a little bit more than I usually would because I'm not going to start a diet. And, and so this happened with Jamie and I last week. We had a crazy week. We kind of got out of whack and, and we kind of got out of routine of working out and eating right. And so we said, you know what? Last Sunday, this is what we said. Tomorrow, it's game on. We are back on schedule because tomorrow's Monday. We got to get ourselves together. So game on. And I, I did okay. Uh, I, I think I got three days in that I did well. Um, Jamie's much more uh, focused than I was about starting on Monday. But, you know, when it comes to Monday, sometimes we get that place where, you know, there's always next week, right? You mess up on Monday, well, you know, we can always try it again next week. And then weeks pass and weeks pass, and we get ourselves in a pattern of behavior. And I wonder if the disciples are starting to feel this change in the atmosphere. Well, there's always next week, there's always tomorrow, maybe things will be better tomorrow because there's not a whole lot going on this and we're told that it was just the next day, it was Monday, you know, the day we go back to work and what I want us to see this morning is we can do Mondays almost every day of our life spiritually. The people in Jerusalem, the people that ushered Jesus in to Jerusalem and paraded Him and celebrated Him, He came in, He saw the temple, He turned around and He left. And so there's no parade, there's no celebration on Monday. And we look in Scripture, what begins to unfold throughout this week is they became disappointed with God. See, in their mindset, they had this idea of what God should be doing. In their mindset, they had this idea of as they were bringing Jesus in, what He was going to do. They were trying to define the work of God and the mission of Jesus Christ into their own little bubble. And when Jesus didn't live up to that, they go from celebrating Him to calling for His crucifixion. 
And even though we may stand on this side of the cross and say, well, we would never do that, the reality is we do this every single day with the gospel. Is we redefine it and we become disappointed with what the gospel actually is. And the sad part about it is the world is looking at the church and trying to see what this gospel and this Christianity and what this loving God is all about. And, and they have expectations of what that is going to be and what that is going to look about. But their expectations when they look at the church don't match what they have and the stories they hear. There's a song that came out several years ago by the Christian group called Cayman's Call called Expectations. The course of that song says this was not the way it looked on the billboard. The smiling family beaming down on the interstate. And one of the lines really grabs me is that it says, this was an expensive ad for something cheap. And how many times do we present the gospel as something grand, something extravagant? We sing about it almost <laughs> all the time. We hear it on the radio. They make movies about it. And how much do we talk about its glory and its grace and its love? But then when we present it, it becomes something cheap. And so we present it to the world. It becomes disappointed with God. And when we see in Scripture and what we can take from Scripture is there's a lot of relevance in how we can become dis disappointed with God. One of the things the Jewish people had a misunderstanding when it came to Jesus Christ is like I mentioned, as he was coming in the temple, they were hoping that he would reestablish King David and King Solomon, the, the glory and splendor of Israel. He would kick Rome out and, and Israel would be its own nation. They would be independent from all other forces. But when Jesus didn't do this, when Jesus didn't give them this gospel of prosperity, their minds began changing and they began seeking ways to kill Jesus Christ. And we can become disappointed with God and we can have all these disappointments with God. And what happens is we allow Satan to kill, steal and destroy the joy that God wants to do us. And we can ultimately walk away from the gospel just like these people walked away from Jesus Christ. If we don't understand what the gospel actually is. The first thing we see and Paul has to deal with in Scripture and what we find here and throughout the Gospels is one of the false Gospels that we can believe in and we can proclaim and is one of the most difficult for people to get out from under is a Gospel of self-reliance. In, in the book of Galatians, the Bible tells us Paul was writing to believers in an area called Galatia. And these believers began, began putting the Gospel with this act of circumcision. And what they were saying is that, you know, if I do this, this is what is going to make me righteous before God. This is what is going to make me one of God's people. And it was this outward sign, this outward work that if they did what they could do on their end, that God would love them more. They were self-reliant on their own salvation, self-reliant on their own justification, self-reliant on, on their own love of God and receiving God's love. But Paul quotes when we become self-reliant, you know, if I just do enough good stuff, if I just go to church enough, if I'm a member of a church enough and, and I do things at the church enough or I give enough money at the church or read my Bible enough, we fail to understand what the Bible tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. But the gospel of self-reliance, what it says is, you know what, I've got God's Ten Commandments. So if I just follow them, you know, that's a measuring rod. And if I just, you know, I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't cheat on my wife, and I don't covet things, and, and you know, I don't, 
I don't murder and, and, and I honor my parents. And if I just do all those things, then I'll be all right. But what happens with this gospel self-reliance is it begins to justify ourselves. It begins to justify our own righteousness. It begins to have this understanding that I can be good enough. And the reality is when I come to that place that I can be good enough and I can do enough stuff and I can go to church enough and read my Bible enough, I am basically telling God, I don't really need Jesus. I don't need what your son did on the cross for me. I don't need the resurrection because I can do this. I've got this. I can do all the right things. And I can justify myself. You may not think you're guilty of this, but how many times have we compared ourselves to other sinners? Well, I'm not as bad as they are. Reality is, is that our comparison isn't, into, isn't against people who are in sin, but it's against Jesus Christ who is perfect. And that obliterates the gospel of self-reliance. It comes this understanding that I can't do good enough. Matter of fact, when Jesus came to this earth, the Bible tells us He defined what the Ten Commandments were. Jesus said when it comes to killing, which we may not physically commit an act of murder, but Jesus says murder actually begins in your heart when you have anger towards another. This act of lust and maybe cheating on your spouse or someone in your relationship with, Jesus said it's not the physical act, it's the lust of the heart. See, Jesus defined that it's not just the physical, it's what begins in the heart. And what we have to understand is that all of our hearts are corrupted by the sinful nature. That's why Jesus came, and that's why we cannot justify ourselves before a holy God outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's also another gospel. And it comes from Scripture, and it's another dangerous one. So if you're not in the gospel self-reliance that you're a good person, you may be in this one. Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, the Bible says that you were saved by grace through faith. That, that obliterates the gospel self-reliance or self-justification. That this is not from yourselves, it is God's gifts, not from works so that no one can boast. And so people hear that. They say, you're right, I can't be good enough. I do need Jesus, and I've accepted Jesus, and I believe He died for me and rose again, and I'm covered by grace. And so now what they live in sometimes is not a gospel of self-reliance, but now they live in a gospel of self-justification. Do you know what? I'm saved by grace, and once saved, always saved. Yeah, I know, I know this isn't right. I know I shouldn't do this. I know this is a sin before God, but I have grace. And I've ran into numerous people in my time in ministry. That is exactly what they tell me. And a lot of times it comes in a point where they are just broken and they're in a, they're a point where they've got to make a decision. They're going to either continue down this path or they're going to change directions. And I'll point them to Scripture and say, look, these things, these actions you have, these views you have, the way you kind of lift up certain people to a higher standard, you know, this is all sin. This is idolatry. These things have to change. And I've heard numerous, numerous times, Pastor, you know, I know it's not right, but I'm so thankful for grace. Saved by grace. You know, once saved, always saved. But I cannot read the Bible, hear God's Word, and come to any sort of understanding that the grace of God is a permit for me to live like the devil. 
You'll not find that anywhere. Matter of fact, if you read on in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, talks about how we are God's, we are saved by grace, not our own, so we can't boast. But verse 10 says, because of this grace, because of this faith, because of what God did for us, we are now His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. See, the gospel of self-justification quickly becomes the gospel of inactivity. That I'm saved by grace, so I don't have to do anything else. I've walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I went in that big bathtub, and I did all the stuff. I checked off of my list, so I'm good. Now I can do what I want until I see God face to face, and then, you know, it's, it's His show then. But the Bible teaches us that therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of this grace, in view of this faith, in view of what Jesus Christ did for us that we couldn't do on our own, in view of God's love, I urge you, I plead with you to present your bodies or all that you are as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age or to this world, or to this generation, or to the things around you, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern, that word discern means that you may know what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. It comes out of Romans 12, 1 through 2. The Bible calls all of us who have accepted Jesus Christ and live under the banner of the gospel that we are now to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling before God. The Bible teaches us that the gospel of self-reliance and the gospel of self-justification is not a gospel at all because God doesn't save us so that we can stay where we are or proclaim who we are, but He saves us to sanctify us or set us apart and lead us to where He wants us to be. That's the gospel. But then there's another gospel we might be in danger of, and that's the gospel of power. We see that in the life of the Pharisees and the Jewish people. They didn't want propitiation. They didn't want an atoning sacrifice. They didn't want Jesus Christ. They wanted prominence. There's a lot of people that live in this gospel, but the gospel is not a power over people. If you read the way Jesus defined what He came to do in the gospel He presented, He calls the gospel to be a gospel of servanthood. That I lower myself and I raise other people up. I take the lowest of servants and I love on people in a way that no one else can love on them in the name of Jesus Christ so I can present this beautiful image of God who lowered Himself to the humblest of servants so that we could be redeemed. The final one that we see here in Mark chapter 11 and Luke chapter 19, also in the Gospel of Matthew, is another Gospel that is very prominent today. And that's the Gospel of stuff. It's kind of referred today as the Gospel of prosperity. Jewish people wanted Jesus to come and, and set up an earthly kingdom. A kingdom that would be prosperous to them in the world in which they live in. They wanted Jesus to better their life in ways that they thought was better for them. Not necessarily their eternal life, but their, their present life. And there's some preachers out there, actually there's quite a bit, that preach this same gospel today. It sounds a lot like this. If you get your right, 
life right with God, God will bless you. If you get your right life, life right with the Word of God, God will bless you. You won't be as sick. Your bank accounts will be overflowing. Your retirement will be set. Your houses will be beautiful. And a lot of these preachers preach this gospel from their million-dollar mansions, their billion-dollar jet planes, their security entourage. And they preach it and people believe it because they think that these, these preachers are in walking image of a gospel of prosperity. But hear what the Bible actually says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for your treasures in heaven. I'm not saying God doesn't bless his children. I can't read the Bible and not see that God doesn't want to bless his children. But the reality is when it comes to our salvation, God has already given us more than we deserve. More than we could ever know that we needed. And the gospel is not about stuff. The gospel is about salvation. And if you're living in a gospel, and here's the thing, you may have been preached this gospel. You may be reading books that present this gospel. But there's no biblical backing to this gospel. People in the Bible got sick. People who followed Jesus died for their faith. Go tell Paul that the gospel should make him rich as he sat in prison. Go tell that to Peter. Go tell that to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, if you live the way God wanted you to live, and I know you're doing it 100% of the time, but you're going to need such a nice house, big IRA plan. It's going to be awesome. That doesn't match Scripture. Yes, God wants to bless you as his child. But the question we have to ask, if all I get from God is my salvation, is that enough? If all I get on this earth is lower economic status or middle wealth status, but I get heaven, is that enough? If I have to struggle with allergies here in the next couple weeks, but I still get heaven, is that enough? See, the gospel is about God coming to save us. The Bible says in Romans 5, 1, that therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel in the simplest terms. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. All of your sin. All of my sin, he paid it all. All of this world's sin, he paid it all. He paid every Republican, Democrat, Independent, Tea Party, Coffee Party, whatever party, sin. He paid it all. He paid everybody's sin that you agree with and disagree with. He paid it all. That's the gospel. It's not about me what I can do, or what I can get away with, or what I think God owes me. It's about what God already did for me. And that's the gospel we proclaim. That's the gospel that we need to put out, that Jesus died once and for all, and that now that I am in Christ, I am dead to sin, but I am now alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
And what the gospel does and my salvation does is it now gives me the freedom to live obediently to God. Hear that again. The gospel now allows me to live freely in obedience to God. Does God still want you to be obedient to his word? Yes. Jesus says that the, the, the evidence that you are my disciples is that you love my commands. And you truly show that you love God when you obey God's commands. And so God still calls us to be obedient. But here's the thing. Now that the wrath of God has been paid and I have confessed Jesus Christ paid it all for me. He rose from the grave that I can be completely forgiven. Forgiven, I'm no longer in my sin, but in the righteousness of Christ. I can live freely in obedience, knowing that when I fall short, when I stumble in my sin, God isn't going to bring Sodom and Gomorrah down upon me. I'm no longer in his wrath, but in his love and his grace. And so now I live in response to this beautiful gospel I want to live this out. I want other people to see the gospel in me so they can come and be a part of this gospel. The word gospel comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that literally means God's spell, which means God's story. The gospel is good news because it is about the story of God sending redemption through Jesus Christ. And if all we get in this life is redemption and salvation, that's enough. When this life is over, no matter how good or bad it was, I'm going to be dancing on streets of gold. That carpenter from Nazareth, he's building me a mansion and invite me to the most beautiful Baptist buffet ever. Well, won't we just be Baptist? So we'll edit that part out, Bree, later, okay? But the gospel allows me freedom and obedience because it flows not out of me, but it flows uh, not out of obligation, but out of a love for God. The gospel gives me freedom and obedience because it flows out of love, not out of obligation. But still we have this Monday. And what in the world does Jesus have with Mondays? He curses a fig tree and he goes and tosses some temple table in or yeah, some temple tables. And maybe we can relate to Jesus a lot on Mondays, and Mondays have big significance in the Bible. On Sunday in the creation count, God created light and light was good and darkness came because of light. On day two, which is Monday of creation, God created an expanse. The Bible says it was just so. There's a separation between the heavens and the waters below. It was was this this precursor or this this pre-warning that there's going to be a separation between us and God. And here we find Jesus with a Monday and it's like a manic Messiah Monday. He comes to this fig tree And he sees it in the distance, verse 13. So he went to find out if there was anything on it when he came to it. And he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Here's what's going on. When a fig tree has leaves on it, it was the evidence that the fig tree was producing fruit or figs. And so visibly, the representation of this fig tree is that it is healthy and producing a, a fruit. And so Jesus goes to it. Obviously, he already knows it doesn't have any, but it's for the sake of the disciples to hear what he's going to say. But it's also this representation when we believe in a false gospel, we may look healthy, but the reality is we are not producing eternal fruit and we are cursed. 
If we have accepted a false gospel and living in a false gospel, we are just like this fig tree that it's cursed by our Messiah. Our Messiah. And so the question is, if I'm looking at this, does this describe my life? Is he Lord and Savior of all my life because that's what the gospel has called me to? Or is he Lord and Savior just when I need him and when he's convenient? So that's a false gospel. Romans 12, we said it's the mercies of God, speaking of all that God has done, that we now present our bodies, meaning all that we are, to a God that loves us. And this is the proper response to the gospel. That's why Jesus issued the command that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything you have, because that's the proper response to the, to the gospel. It is to pre present and produce this fruit of love out into this world, and the only way to do that is we've accepted the true gospel. But what about this whole top, tossing temple tables? I'll tell you what, if you want to be like Jesus, don't be like Jesus on this Monday. You can curse plant life all your way, all the way to work all you want, but I guarantee you if you show up at work or at school and start tossing stuff around, they will treat you like Jesus. They will cast you out. Jesus arrives at the temple, and I don't know if he's just like hangry or what's going on here, but he's so upset he begins throwing out those buying and selling, overturned the tables, tables of money changers and chairs of those selling doves and would not prevent permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. The temple is a representation to God's people. This is where God's presence dwelt. This is where God's people would come to offer sacrifices and prayers to God. They would have communion with God and be able to be restored back into relationship with God. And as Jesus comes in, he's not hangry. I understand hangry. I get hangry. My beautiful daughter over there gets hangry. You should go to Gulf Shores with her in the summertime, about 12 hours in the car, and you understand hangry. But Jesus is not hangry. He's not hungry, angry. He comes in and what's going on is the priests, the priests have, have set up this, this system where the people, as they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and during this time of Passover, there'd be a massive pilgrimage of Jewish people coming from all over the scattered world to Jerusalem to worship God, to celebrate when God delivered them from physical bondage in Egypt. And as they come to Jerusalem, you know, they're not bringing their, their cows or their doves or their goats and sheep for sacrifice. They come to Jerusalem that they're going to buy it. And they're going to buy it to take into the temple to be sacrificed. But here's what happened. The priesthood had become so, so guilty and so disgusting that you could buy a sheep or a goat or a dove outside the temple. And then when you came in, there was a price hike. And that might seem like a big deal, but the priest would have to inspect every single animal. And so if the animal you brought in from outside the temple didn't match their requirements, they would tell you, you need to buy an animal from in here. And Jewish history tells us that the priest would pocket the prophet. And so they were creating this boundary that these people who had a desire to come into the house of God, to come into his temple and into his presence, to do what God had commanded them to do in offering these sacrifices and seeking restoration through him, these priests, these individuals who were to teach and to lead the people of God, instead of opening the doors, they were creating these walls. So the people were no longer worried about their relationship with God. They were worrying about if they brought enough money. And so Jesus makes that statement in verse 17, my house would be called a house of prayer. That comes from the Old Testament in Isaiah. 
That passage in Isaiah 56 deals with all of God's people being allowed to come into the presence of God and not to hinder anyone to be into his presence. And that's what the priests were doing. They were hindering the people from coming into the presence of God. That's what a false gospel does. And then Jesus says that, but you have made it a den of thieves. That passage comes out of Jeremiah chapter 7. And the, and the context of that passage in Jeremiah chapter 7 is the people of God were coming into the temple and they were acting all holy and mighty in the temple and that they were right with God, but then when they leave the temple, they'd be living in a completely different life. And that's what the gospel, false gospel does. The false gospel says, I can check in on Sunday morning. I'll listen to that preacher until it's about time to eat lunch. But then when I get to check out, I get to do things my way. I become more of a fan of Frank Sinatra than Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You're putting a wall between the people that want to be with God. And you're putting on a show for the people when your hearts aren't right with God. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's why he has this righteous anger. That's why the people become disappointed with God and with the gospel and with the mission of Jesus Christ. And so the question this morning is, where are we today? Have we been living a false gospel? Have we been living now that I've come to Christ, I can do whatever I want? Or we've been living that, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm at least better than Joe Schmo. Are, are, we, are we justifying ourselves? Are we justifying our sin? Are we finding justification in our Savior? Peter preached, and the Bible says this, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Have you been believing and living out the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Jesus paid it all. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world in this way. For God so loved Mike Hurchin in this way. For God so loved you in this way that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He paid it all. He did it all so that we could be forgiven and be given eternal life. That's the gospel. That's what we preach, not putting walls up before people and not putting on a show for the people. It's all about Him. If you're here this morning and you know you've been believing a false gospel, and in part, I won't blame you because there's a lot of people preaching them. But you know you need, you've been making the gospel of Jesus Christ something that it's not biblically and that needs to change. Maybe you just need to come and kneel before the Father. But maybe you're here this morning and you've yet to accept the gospel. You've done all the stuff you thought you should do. You're here, right? Sad reality is there are going to be a lot of people who have a church name in their obituary that are going to be on the wrong side of eternity when this life is over. Your membership of a church isn't what saves you. It is only Jesus Christ. 
If you've yet to accept this, I want to give you that opportunity. I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you know you've yet to accept Jesus Christ and God's love for you, I just want to ask you if you would pray this prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud. You can just pray it to God. You're not praying it to me. With everyone's heads bowed, eyes closed. just want you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I am a sinner. Please forgive me for my sins. And I believe your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins and rose again. And I am confessing him as my Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. And that was the first time you've ever prayed that prayer. No one's looking around. Everybody's eyes are closed and heads are bowed. And that's the first time you ever prayed that prayer. Would you mind just to lift up your hand and let it be known here this morning? See that? Thank you. Father, you are good, and I thank you for this day. And Lord, help us as your people and your church to present the true gospel of your word, that we're saved by your work and what you've done for us once and for all. Help us to present the love you've shown us and the grace you have given us in this world, that, that now we can live in grace and live out grace so others can understand grace. Lord, forgive us if we've been living something that is not your word, your voice given to us. Lord, we want to be your people who are called by your name and are representing you in this world so that others can come to know you as their Lord and Savior as well. I thank for everyone here this morning. I thank you for just awakening us and continuing to speak to our hearts and continuing to, to strengthen us and and sometimes make us work out our faith with fear and trembling before you. Forgive us where we have failed you in this time and place. We come this time of invitation, this time of response. Lord, let us respond appropriate to you. Lord, you are good. And I thank you for this day and thank you for allowing me to be used by you. I give you all the praise for you alone are worthy of it. Praise in the name of Jesus, amen.